May the Lord be in your heart and help you to confess your sins. Yes? I have a, a scrupulous conscience, Father. This need to confess uh, so many things. If I step on two straws in the shape of a cross, I feel that I have to confess it. It torments me. We'll try to make a good confession. And remember, Christ forgives us all of our sins. Only little things. Nothing. Seventeen of them, Father. The first was that waitress uh, near Candlestick Park. I cut her throat and watched her bleed. She bled a great deal. It's a problem that I'm working on, Father. All this bleeding. <laughs> First, let me welcome back to the show, Ashley. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing great. Excited to, to be here. Absolutely. Okay, so this was not an episode that I actually had intended on doing. This was, you know, the, the Exorcist episode, which, uh, again, big thanks to Kelly Goodner and Jim Hemphill for being on that show with me. Um, it was... And has, still to this date is the most downloaded episode in the show's history. And uh, what's interesting is there are some episodes that have been up for four years and they continue to generate downloads. So the Exorcist episode clearly struck a chord with a lot of people. And sort of in the last few minutes of that episode, I'm talking to Jim Hemphill and I just sort of briefly bring up The Exorcist 3. And I'm like, you know, it's it's not a movie that's really seems to be in the, the horror movie lexicon or the or the horror movie canon these days. It's just seemed to have, been, you know, gone by the wayside. And Jim amusingly said, well, I don't know what kind of people you're hanging out with, or I don't know who you're hanging out with, <laughs> but uh, in our circles, the horror movie circles, that's considered a masterpiece. And that that was enough right there for me to say, you know what, I need to watch The Exorcist Part 3. So shortly after Jim and I ended that recording, I fired up The Exorcist Part 3. And as we're going to sort of discover throughout this episode, it, to me was one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen. I'll just put it out there like that. So this episode, there was enough people that were reaching out to me saying, we'd love to hear you talk about The Exorcist 3. And after seeing the movie, I reached out to Ashley and said, what do you think? I think this should be our next one. And she jumped on the opportunity, and here we are. So Ashley, before we get into it, before we get into the main subject matter, uh, briefly your thoughts on the original Exorcist, maybe if you've seen the sequel or not, and um, just your general thoughts on The Exorcist 3 before we do a deep dive. Yeah, I mean, I, I love The Original Exorcist. It's one of my, not just one of my favorite, you know, horror horror movies. It's one of my favorite, you know, movies. I, I think it's so smart and I think the script is so smart. And it was the first film that I saw as a, like a preteen. I was like 11 when I saw it. And it was like one of the first films I snuck like behind my parents to go watch. And so it was so frightening and I couldn't tell them that I had seen it because I would have gotten into so much trouble. And I remember not being able to sleep for like weeks after after seeing it because it was so frightening. And I I have to be very honest with you. When we when we first started talking about it, I was very skeptical because The Exorcist to me is one of those films that is just standalone a, a masterpiece. And the idea of any sequel being able to do anything that's anywhere close to being as amazing as the original Exorcist was, I just didn't think was possible. And I, I have seen the sequel, uh, The Heretic, Exorcist Part Two, complete shit show. I mean, I, <laughs> I hated it as most as most people do. And so I was really, really skeptical, not just because of that, but also I'm not a big fan of the third movies and trilogy. 
movies, especially horror trilogies, because typically by the third movie, you know, the story is super stale. It's it's kind of, you know, just it's just gotten old. I mean, I'm looking at you here, Scream 3 or Child's Play 3. I mean, it just it, it gets really, really bad by the third movie. And I put it in and I have my bottle of wine ready to at least make it an enjoyable watching experience. And at 10 minutes in, I was absolutely terrified. And I have to say that I... You know, I think it is one of the most interesting and best psychological thrillers I've ever seen. Because I know we'll talk a little bit about what genre does this really fit in? Because um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily horror. And that's what I think is so interesting about it. But, you know, it was this amazing thriller, a psychological thriller. And I, I was really I, I I watched it with the lights on halfway through because I was so I was so frightened. And, and I think that uh, anybody that hasn't seen it. I think that I would encourage you to stop, go watch it, and then come back and listen to our analysis because I, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised because it's absolutely um, a fantastic movie. You know, one of the interesting. So, oh, just so I'm just so clear, so you had not seen it until I reached no. out to you and said, "Let's, no, let's I, look at this I, I, one." I, no, I've always avoided it because I, after, you know, The Heretic, I mean, why would why would anybody want to see anything else? Because The Heretic kind of, you know, it taints the original Exorcist in a way because it's got some of the same actors and characters. And it just, it's kind of like, you know, this wah-wah, you know, letdown from this brilliant film. And then this one slips in and it just... I mean, it was it was really frightening and really good. It was really good. You mentioned that uh, you you watched it with the lights on. This was the first movie that I can recall maybe ever where I had to take a couple breaks. I mm-hmm. was I was into the movie and I was just like things were happening on the screen. And I said, all right, you know what? Let me just hit pause. Let's <laughs> let's take 10 minutes. Let's just uh, do something else. Like it was really it really got to me. And I remember I immediately emailed Jim and said, you know, I watched The Exorcist Part 3, and you were right. My goodness, you were right. I said, this is one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. And, and he's kind of just wrote back. He's like, yeah, I, yeah, I told you. <laughs> you know? <And> so, <laughs> so let's just... um. Just bring, I just want to sort of bring the listeners up to speed here. So let's see here. So, so, you know, as Jim discussed in the episode that we did on The Exorcist, uh, in 1977, a sequel, The Exorcist Part Two, The Heretic was released. And, and as Jim mentioned, you know, especially in the 1970s, they were just not, sequels were not as prevalent as they are today. In fact, with the sort of lone exception of The Godfather, sequels were kind of thought of as a joke, a mere cash grab. Now, the original plan for the sequel was to produce a very cheap film that would incorporate clips from the original film and outtakes that weren't used and tell a story from the point of view of Detective Kinderman. But unfortunately, the actor who played Kinderman in the original Exorcist, Lee J. Cobb, passed away. So that idea was ultimately scrapped. However, once accomplished director John Borman came on board, the sequel was given a much bigger budget and A-list actors brought in. Now, much of this, like I said, has already been discussed in the first Exorcist episode that we did. But it bears repeating that both William Peter Blatty and William Friedkin had zero involvement with the sequel, which was released on June 17, 1977. Now, it was made on a budget of $14 million, and the sequel brought in a little over $30 million. But also, as Jim mentioned, more than half of that $30 million box office take was made before the movie was even shown in one theater. So you see, on the strength of the name alone, the studio was able to sell the international distribution rights, the TV rights, etc., for huge sums of money. So by my calculations, The Exorcist II only made about $15 million in actual box office receipts. That pales in comparison to the over $400 million the original film made. The Exorcist II was, of course, savaged by critics and movie-going audiences. But in the 41-plus years since the release of the film... The sequel has gained a somewhat cult status, and in my opinion, I'm not going to say it's a good movie, but I think it's something that everybody should see, because it's it's very interesting. I think that's the best way to describe that. So, William Peter Blatty, who both wrote the book and the screenplay for the original film, he continued to write both books and screenplays, and in 1980, he jumped behind the camera for the first time as a director with the film The Ninth Configuration, based on a 1978 book of the same name that he also wrote. The Ninth Configuration is a psychological drama that stars Stacy Keach as a Marine Corps colonel tasked with overseeing the treatment uh, and rehabilitation of military personnel at a government-run insane asylum. Although the movie wasn't a commercial success, it did garner very strong reviews, and Blatty would go on to win a Golden Globe for Best Original Screenplay. But what I think is most important to our story is that The Ninth Configuration is part two of William Peter Blatty's Trilogy of Faith, three books that he's written with The Exorcist being part one, and 1983's Legion as the third book in the trilogy. 
Now, Legion was conceived originally as a sequel to The Exorcist. Blatty, at first, had no interest in doing a sequel, but he was kicking around the idea of telling a story about Lieutenant Kinderman in the aftermath of the events of the first film. In fact, both Blatty and William Friedkin began a sort of pre-production in the late 1970s with the idea that Friedkin would once again direct the film. And even with the box office disaster that was The Exorcist Part II, Warner Brothers was still ready to move forward with the concept of a third film in the franchise. Now, ultimately, Blatty and Friedkin couldn't see eye to eye in the story, and the project went into crazy development hell that would last for more than 10 years. So William Peter Blatty chose to scrap the idea of making a movie and instead tell his story about Lieutenant Kinderman in the pages of a novel, Legion, which was published in 1983. Now, Ashley, I was wondering if you could take the listeners a little bit through the book Legion. Yeah. So as you said, it was released in 1983. And in Legion, Blatty writes about Detective Lieutenant Kinderman, who's investigating a set of murders that are occurring throughout Georgetown, where, of course, the first film and the novel are set. And what begins as kind of a police procedural, the novel quickly incorporates many of the same markers of the first Exorcist book, where the supernatural kind of seamlessly creeps in. And we, the viewer, were forced to walk alongside a skeptical lead as we try to decipher what's real, what's evil, and just who or what is causing all the horrors that that we're seeing. As the novel progresses, we hear about the murders. They're gruesome, they're theatrical, and they look a lot like those committed by a character called the Gemini Killer, which is a serial killer who was killed by police 12 years earlier, but his body was never found. And quick fact, Dana, um, as I was doing research for this, Blatty based the Gemini Killer on par- in part on the real-life Zodiac Killer. And while the Zodiac Killer was never identified, he did send letters, you know, to the press talking about his crimes and these weird tidbits about his personal life. And in 1974, he made a reference to the Exorcist film. In January of that year, the the actual Zodiac Killer told the San Francisco Chron- Chronicle that the original Exorcist was the best satirical comedy that he had ever seen, <laughs> which I think says a lot. Um, but moving on, in the novel, the murders all have a very strong religious overtone. Um, eventually, the investigation leads Kinderman to a mental ward where he encounters a patient that looks exactly like Father Damien Karras from the first book and film. And we're led to believe that Karras is possessed by the spirit of the Gemini killer who occasionally leaves his body to go out and commit the crimes. Um, I will kind of leave some of the plot points uh, because we'll talk about them in the movie and also in case anybody wants to go and and watch the movie or read the book. But basically, the movie then unfolds and it's a, a whodunit and a crime story about who this Gemini killer is, if Father Karras actually is possessed by him and who's committing all of the murders. Um, but the one thing I think a lot of people would find surprising about what is a sequel to The Exorcist is that there's no actual exorcism in Legion, but rather an epilogue that presents this really interesting philosophical discussion about evil and the nature of evil. Uh, but to discuss it, though, I, we have to return back to the book's title, which again is Legion. That title is a reference to the Christian Bible's Gospel of Mark. And in Mark 5, 9, Jesus asks a possessed man, what is thy name? And he answered, saying, my My name is Legion, for we are many. Well, in the epilogue, Kinderman presents an argument about evil and the nature of evil to his partner Atkins. And Kinderman hypothesizes that the Big Bang was actually created by Lucifer's fall from heaven. And his fall created us, the human race, and the whole of the human race is broken because we're broken pieces of Lucifer himself. And so for Kinderman, the evolution and the story of man is actually the story of Lucifer's attempt to become an angel again, to be mended or are put back together. The problem, though, is that like Lucifer, we are all good, but we're also all evil. We are Lucifer and we are Satan. We are the legion for we are the many that make him up. And that brings me to one of the essential themes of the novel. There's this battle between the faithful and the secular and the issue that free will poses when it comes to making a choice between the two. Uh, Blatty is super strategic and ensuring that Kinderman makes many references to the brothers uh, Karamazov throughout Legion. Written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, the book deals with themes of good versus evil and the free will to choose which one we're going to be. In the novel, Dostoevsky wants us to understand that free will is a burden placed upon man by God. We're free to believe in him or not and to do his goodwill or not, but it isn't quite that simple as most people aren't strong enough to choose to do good and with full faith believe. And because of that, we're all left with sin and we're all born with the capacity to choose to be better, but more often than not, 
we don't. And there's this quote from the the book that I, I want to just bring up here. It says, man, do not pride yourself on your superiority to the animals, for they are without sin. While you, with all your greatness, you defile the earth wherever you appear and leave an ignoble trail behind you. And I think that quote deeply connects to Legion because for Kinderman, we humans are all bad because, again, we're all the devil himself. And that brings me to one final point. In your original Exorcist episode, Dana, you and Kelly touched on why people find these types of movies and these books so frightening. And I think that's an important question for us to think of as we talk about this tonight, this final piece in this trilogy that that Blatty has presented us here about faith and about the book Legion. Because exorcism stories are widely regarded as terrifying, even for those people that don't believe in anything regarding faith or God. Uh, For example, in preparing for this, I talked to my husband about the genre, and he's a self-described agnostic ex-Catholic, and he's not not a big believer in much, but he finds exorcism movies and those movies that contain exorcisms like The Conjuring to be utterly terrifying. And I asked him why. And he said that it's the fear that he's wrong, that there is something, that evil does exist, and there's not going to be anything he can do to stop it. And so to that end, while we know that exorcism films are kind of innately always religious films, I think it's different for those people of faith and those people of not. Because for those that are religious, it's exorcism movies can be a triumph of faith. You know, it's all real. God has to step in to fix it. And for those that are agnostic or atheist, it's a chance to know that there is something and that something is potentially much to be feared. And that's perhaps the biggest draw of any religious movie. You know, the year before the exorcism movie, the Exorcism of Emily Rose came out in 2005, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ was released, and it made over $612 million worldwide. And while devout Christians may disagree, I would argue that the movies are completely of the same vein. They're both movies about faith, about doubting such faith, and fully believing in something evil in order to access and evolve into the ultimate good. So, you know, in the Passion movie, it's Jesus accepting his fate and dying a brutal death in order to save his father's followers. And in Emily Rose, it's about the main character choosing to suffer at the hands of the ultimate evil in order to provide a way for others to come to good, to to Jesus. Good triumphs because of the choice and the exercising of that free will we've talked about to make such a choice. So even when demons win in the first Exorcist novel with the death of Karis, it's still a triumph because his death and possession, it proves evil's real which in turn proves that good, or in this case, a Christian God, is also real. The agnostics and the atheists may not see it in such a clear delineation between God and the devil, but they might replace that with good and evil. And the fear for them is that such evil is ubiquitous and potentially able to possess or exist within us all. And there's one final quote from Legion that I think helps support that ubiquity. Blatty writes at the close of the novel, Kinderman's talking, and he says something else he told Atkins. He stood with his nose an inch away from the sergeant hands stuffed deep in the pockets of his coat. What does Lucifer mean? Light bearer. And what is the stuff of the universe? Energy. What is energy's commonest form? Light. So I think the point Blatty's made here is that Lucifer is both light and the ultimate darkness. He's two sides of the same coin, much as we humans are. And if we're to accept that, then I argue that the most frightening part of every exorcist story is the question it ultimately poses. If the capacity for evil exists within us all, can it ever truly be exorcised since it's a part of what makes us human? And if not, then I suppose we all have the capability of being possessed in a way and a chance of giving into that darkness at any time without the ability to exercise ourselves from it fully and completely. And really, what greater horror exists than being forced to combat and face one's own nature? And I think Blatty knew that, and that's why he was able to create such terrifying novels and such a terrifying movie as a result. And what do you think of Blatty as a writer? I think that his writing's interesting. I, I was really surprised at how easy of a read it was, and I was also surprised at how frightening of a read it was. I, I've read the I've read the original Exorcist, and I it's been a long time though, and I don't remember being as frightened as I was reading it, as I was reading this book. And I think that he was in his element, and he was he had the idea of this question of faith really well put together by the time this book came along. And I think he he writes well. And I, I think he's a really adept writer, but he's also a really adept director. So I think he's he's a really talented guy that had this 
really interesting philosophical view of what makes us all up, what makes human nature up, and the way that religion plays into that. And I was I was actually really surprised at how because it's pretty long. I mean, for a book like that, it's 284 pages, but it read really, really, really quickly. And it's it's pretty good. I found it interesting because I was sort of just trying to find a little research on how well the book was received. And I came across mm-hmm. the uh, just a little bl- excerpt here from uh, the, the Wikipedia page from uh, about Legion. And I'm just going to read it verbatim here. It said, in 1983, author William Peter Blatty sued the New York Times for $6 million, mm-hmm. claiming that Legion had not been included on the New York Times bestseller list due to either negligence or intentional falsehood, saying it should have been included based on sales figures. Times countered that the list was not mathematically objective, but was editorial content and thus protected under the Constitution as free speech. Mm-hmm. Blatty appealed it to the Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. Thus, the lower court ruling stood that the list was editorial content, not objective factual content, and the Times had the right to exclude books from the list. And I wanted to talk a little bit just about that because this is the sequel to The Exorcist, the novel. This is the mm-hmm. second book, and The Exorcist was a the no- I'm speaking of the novel was a sure. phenomenon and it mm-hmm. was a massive book. And I'm, I've always kind of wondered when I was reading this, why the New York times, and I found it interesting because I always thought that, that, you know, like the billboard top 100 is there, there's, there's always mathematics behind mm-hmm. the reason, but to learn that the New York times bestseller list is, is a list that it's editorial content, meaning that uh, if I was in charge of the list, I could put whatever books I want on there. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Because, uh, again, Legion as a book is not in that canon of hugely popular horror novels, yet Mm-mm. it's it's a sequel to one of the most popular horror novels of all time. You know, I think that's interesting, but I, I, I and I don't know this, I'm just supposing this, but I, I wonder if we have to think about when the original Exorcist came out versus this, because the original Exorcist came out in, what was it, 71? The book, I think, was released in 71. And this one came out in 83. So it's 12 years later. And I think you guys did a great job on the first episode of talking about how controversial, you know, The Exorcist was, because movies just weren't graphic like that back then. Like, it was such a shock. And the book was like that, too. People didn't get that type of literature, you know, that was that was so widely disseminated. And I think that the world was much different in 83. It wasn't as shocking, right? It wasn't as big of a deal. And I I don't particularly think that the horror genre of books ever have been as critically acclaimed as the rest of, you know, the world of literature. And I I wonder if that has something to do with it, that, you know, maybe one of the reasons why The Exorcist was such a huge phenomenon is because it was so new, it was so different, and it was so out there compared to anything else. And and when Legion came out, it kind of was amongst many because, you know, Stephen King was writing by that point. And, you know, so you had other options, basically. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why it fell by the, you know, it fell by the wayside in terms of critics and in terms of, um, you know, just just recognition. And, and maybe it's the same reason why the movie as well, right? Like, because critics, if you look at what critics thought of the movie when it came out versus to now when people write pieces about the Exorcist series, people have a much more positive view of the Exorcist 3 than they did when the movie initially came out. And so I wonder if it was suffering in part because of the fatigue of the Exorcist, you know, series as well as the fatigue of the sequel and you know and all of that i wonder if all of that played into the same thing with the book as it did with the movie of people just not not getting it not appreciating it in the way that they did with a little bit of retrospective you've read both the exorcist Mm -hmm. and legion so i'm just going to ask you just directly on a psychological level which one got to you more that's, you know, I think if you'd asked me when I read the first, the first Exorcist book, it would be the first one because I was closer in age to Reagan <laughs> than I am, than I am now. Um, but definitely Legion. And, and I think, I think for a couple of reasons, I think not having the full confirmation of supernatural that happens in the book and it just kind of, I mean, you do like it's in there, but you know, there are these really great moments where you could link the, you know, is it about, uh, you know, 
is he actually crazy or is he actually possessed? You know, it's a lot clearer, these questions of, you know, there could be other things explaining the behavior in many ways where you could explain things away as opposed to, you know, when Reagan's head spins around and it's kind of, you know, at that point, you know, well, <laughs> she's probably, probably evil, right? You know, so I think that Legion does a better job of leaving open the possibility and that crisis of faith. I think the fact that that crisis of faith actually exists still at the end as opposed to in the initial book that makes it more frightening. So it would be seven long years before we would actually see Legion be turned into a a major motion picture. And the studio behind it was Morgan Creek Productions. Now they brought William Peter Blatty on, of course, to write the screenplay. But they also brought him on to direct. And I thought that was interesting because he had up until that point, he had only directed the ninth configuration, which was not a commercial hit. There was other directors out there that that offers were made to, including John Carpenter. I'm always kind of curious about a John Carpenter-directed exorcist <laughs> film would look like. Blatty cast the wonderful George C. Scott in the lead mm. role as, as Kinderman, and Brad Dorff as Patient X. Blatty shot the film on location in Georgetown in eight weeks, and by all accounts, everything sort of went, everything was status quo, everything went well. Uh, it wasn't until four months after the finished product was done that executives contacted Blatty and said, this movie is not going to work for for the very things that you've talked about, Ashley, and that in the movie, there's no supernatural, real established supernatural element. If they were going to entitle this movie Exorcist 3, Exorcist Legion, if they were going to have Exorcist in the title... Right. Damn it, the studio executives were going to make sure there was an exorcism in the movie. There better be some Latin and some holy water. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So they pumped another $4 million into the film. And then that's when they brought in actor Jason Miller, who played Father Karras in the original Mm -hmm. film. And it's really important, listeners, because we don't want to talk too much about the plot of the movie because I really don't want to spoil this movie if you haven't seen it. This is a gem that you need to find. But at the same time, you also, I think, upon a first-time viewing, I think the first two acts of this film, maybe even two and a half acts of this film, are going to be just utterly psychologically terrifying. Mm. And then there's going to be an abrupt cut, and it's going to go in a completely different direction which I think doesn't work necessarily for the film. You know, I wonder if you could, Ashley, if you could talk a little bit about the differences between the book and the movie without spoiling too many of the key plot points. Sure. I mean, the the biggest difference is like you've already alluded to, which is the the ending, that there is no exorcism that exists. Um, Instead, the Gemini killer, he kind of wraps up his own story. He decides what's going to, to happen to him and he makes this big confession to Kinderman and he actually dies of heart failure in, in the book. He wills himself to die of heart failure. And so there's no, you know, great exorcism and there's no vindication for the Father Karras character as as there, we won't say how that comes about, but as as it kind of comes about in the movie. Um, additionally, there's a lot of uh, other characters that are suspected of the murders all throughout the book. It's a little more of a you know, a whodunit type thing. Those, those characters are in the movie, but there are these little one-off scenes. The different, you know, doctors who, who are dismissive of their patients, or there's this one doctor who's really mysterious and does seem to care about the recent death of his wife. So Kinderman suspects him and a lot more time spent on those mental patients in the mental ward themselves because they find their fingerprints at the crime scenes and they actually dig into that a lot more in the book. And then there's also this character of Atkins, which is Kinderman's partner that isn't included at all in the movie and rather Kinderman investigates alone in in the movie. So those are the big differences. But the the most uh, striking difference is, is the ending. It's completely different. And as you talked about in the, I don't know if we call it director's cut, but the the cut that I think it was Scream Factory did, you know, where they they brought in the footage of what Blatty originally wanted. It's much more aligned with the book than it is with what we get to see in the theatrical version. Morgan Creek was the production company behind it. The distributor was 20th Century Fox, and the movie was released August 17th, 1990. It had a running time of 110 minutes on a budget of $11 million. Uh, the Exorcist 3 took in $39 million, which let's talk about 1990. That's 28 years ago. So $39 million, and I'm not using hard 
inflation facts here, but just based on my experiences on the movie, $39 million 28 years ago was a middle-of-the-road, modestly successful film. Yeah. I would attribute that to maybe a film today making, taking in close to, you know, $100 million domestically. But keep in mind that, you know, this was made on an $11 million budget. So this almost quadrupled its budget. So it was a successful movie. But what was interesting for me to go back and look at this, and I remember in 1990, I was 12 years old. I remember seeing the trailers for this movie. Uh, I, I did, and I mentioned it to Jim, that I did see the movie on home video as a 12 or 13 year old. And I'm just talking whew, right over my head. I mean, mm. I mean, just, just, I, there were little aspects of the movie, like the, the garden shear weapon. I don't know what exactly what it's called, but I remember those, those images were burned in my head mm -hmm. going into rewatching this movie. But that being said, it didn't really grab me. But I was interested to find out that this movie, upon its release, had a mixed to negative critical reception and has, to this date, has a 53% mm -hmm. critical review on Rotten Tomatoes. And, it's interesting because you mentioned The Conjuring and movies like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Annabelle and, and all those movies, you know, they're, they're so prevalent today. But a film like The Exorcist 3 wasn't. And I'm wondering if it was much like The Exorcist, the original Exorcist was something that nobody had ever seen before. Exorcist 3 was a, is a psychological thriller that really does take its time. Mm. And, and, and it's the, the horror is way more suggestive than it is visual. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, I can't change people's opinion, but I'm really trying to dive deep into why this film sort of failed to ultimately do well at the box office. It was modestly successful. And but more importantly, why it failed with critics. What are your thoughts? You know, I, th I think a lot of what you hit on, I mean, also, you know, today, I mean, we have such a amazing, you know, renaissance of horror right now. I mean, th th I don't think we've seen other than like, you know, the initial push of slasher movies, you know, I don't know another time where horror is having such a great moment that it's that it's having over the past few years. And I think that it just wasn't the popular thing back then. But, you know, I would say to anybody who's skeptical, um, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, Dana, but if you like the movie Seven, <laughs> which came out five years after this, Seven took so much of its atmosphere and its mood and even the character Morgan's Freeman char Freeman's character is so similar to Kinderman's character. I mean, that movie took so much from The Exorcist Three, and I was really surprised by that. And watching it, I felt like I was watching this weird precursor to the movie Seven. Um, even that scene. And I don't want to give away what it is, but there's this scene, you'll note when you see it, where there are these little jars of of bodily fluids and, and The Exorcist 3 that reminded me so much of that scene in Kevin Spacey's apartment with the journals and all of his body, you know, diagram, I mean, all of his body parts and talking from the perspective of his body parts. I mean, there are so many movies that came after this one in the 90s that were these police psychological crime thrillers that reminded me so much of this movie and it predates all of them. And so, like you said, I wonder I think it was a problem where the genre itself wasn't super popular at the time uh, because the horror genre had already taken that turn toward, um, you know, the slasher movies and the Stephen King movies because Pet Cemetery had come out and, you know, all of those movies and, and things were moving more in that direction and horror. And I feel like this movie, it suffered from riding the line between genres because I think a lot of critics and a lot of maybe even the audience didn't quite know what it was supposed to be. Was it supposed to be a, you know, this huge commentary on faith and anti-religion or anti-organized religion? Or was it supposed to be a psychological police thriller? Or was it supposed to be a horror movie and a supernatural movie? I mean, it kind of is this weird thing in and of itself that sometimes that's off-putting when people don't know what category, you know, what lane to put it in. That's a, I mean, you brought up a really good point. I do want to point out that I'm glad you, I have a, um, um, some notes I put. I actually wrote seven with a question mark. Yeah, so we're on the same right? page there. Yes. You know, I, I, I'm going to go one step further and say that seven really strongly and I'm gonna be polite about this borrowed it rips it off it rips, it's a, look it's seven <laughs> it is a complete ripoff of the Exodus 3 I'll just it go ends. ahead and say it it's and that's not to say seven is a bad movie of course not no no but so, seven was more critically successful was Brad Pitt was super fucking hot still yeah. when seven came out so you had that there's no hot person and the Exodus 3 to put on posters right like so seven was a more successful movie but se I mean my goodness that that scene in seven where they lay the that terrible scene with lust where they lay the picture of the device down mm -hmm. that kills the prostitute 
Like that is so indicative of this because one of the scariest things about Exorcist 3 is they don't actually show you any murders. They just describe them to you. And I mean, that's a direct ripoff, a direct ripoff. And to touch on what you said about horror in, in 1990, like, let's be honest, everyone, horror was officially dead. You mentioned Pet mm-hmm. Cemetery. Pet Cemetery mm-hmm. may be the lone example of a horror film that actually made money. I want to say that came out in 89 or 90. It was right in that same time period. Yeah. But keep this in mind. By this point, by 1990, you had already had the release of Elm Street 5 in 89, which was a bomb. You had the release of Jason Takes Manhattan Part 8 Mm -hmm. of Friday 13th, which was a bomb. Uh, Child's Play 2 or 3 at that point had Mm -hmm. come out. Horror was dead. And Mm -hmm. so just take a listen to this trailer, everyone. Take me! Come into me! Take me! In 1973, an extraordinary motion picture stunned our senses and uncovered our deepest fears in a way no film had ever done before. When it was over, we thought the terror had ended. But it had just begun. Morgan Creek proudly presents The Exorcist 3, written and directed by William Peter Blatty, creator of The Exorcist. This is clearly marketed as a horror film. Yeah. I mean, make no mistake about it. This was whoever was in charge of marketing over at Warner or Morgan Creek. You know, they didn't do a really good job of sort of pinning down the audience, because if you're a if you're a horror movie fan, you're so fatigued from shitty horror film after shitty mm. horror film that you're out. And and then at the same time, when you look when you look at the movies that were released in 1990, uh, with the exception of Misery, which, of course, was riding off of the, you know, it's the Stephen King, Kathy Bates, James Caan. That, of course, was really popular. But let's look at some of the other films that were released that year. Goodfellas, Pretty Woman, Home Alone, you know, Awakenings, Total Recall, Dances with Wolves. I mean, the, Miller's Crossing, Godfather Part Three. The, you know, I'm just picking out a few here. You know, The Hunt for Red October. And here's The Exorcist 3 on my list. But I'm saying it just, horror, horror was not in. It was not in vogue in 1990. So I just think that if this movie had been released just a mere seven years later, mm. and I mean, Scream came out in 96. If this had been released in 97, I think uh, it would have fared far better, both critically and at the box office. I have a coworker, same one I mentioned in the original Exorcist episode. You know, I told him, I said, listen, you've got to see Exorcist 3. You've got to see it. You got to see it. And I promise you, it, it's going to have the pace of it is going to be, you know, it's 1990, I told him. So, you know, obviously the pace of films is going to be a substantially better. You know, it's not going to be the quote unquote slow burn. But the reality is it is, you know, it's certainly yeah. a movie that takes its time. And, and you mentioned it. I mean, this is compare it to the original Exorcist and the Exorcist 3 on the gore factor and what you see on screen is mm-hmm. exponentially lower than what's oh, in yeah. the original, hands down. I mean, it isn't until the end that adult, I mean, I, I can't, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't really think until the ending piece that's tacked on, I don't know if we ever even see any gore other than just like the sheet, right? Like yeah. maybe a, a sheet over a corpse has like a blood stain on it, maybe, maybe, but it's not, you know, it's not there. And, and I think that that is something that a lot of movies maybe learned from with this because, you know, they, like I've said already, you know, they, they, dis- they describe the murders and in sometimes, I mean, I was like, you know, getting so uncomfortable listening to it because it's so much worse when you hear about it than when you see it. And I was reminded, you know, one of my very favorite uh, horror movies ever is 28 Days Later. Uh, 28 Days Later. I think it's absolutely terrifying. And there's that scene in 28 Days Later where Killian Murphy, it's the first night after he's woken up and that character, it's a, it's a guy is describing for him at a subway stop or a metro stop in London where the infection is just going from person to person to person. And it's absolutely 
terrifying and the screenshot is just on that guy's face and that's you hear it you don't see any of it and it's so scary and then you know in the sequel to 28 days later 28 weeks later there's that similar scene where you know the they're all trapped in that room and you actually see the infection spread from person to person to person and is it frightening yes but it's nowhere near as affecting as in 28 days later when you're just hearing about it and i think that's what made this movie so scary is you're sitting there and you're hearing these terrible things that happen to people i mean just gruesome horrific stuff and it's so much worse for you to see kenderman's face and his face changing as you you know as, as he's listening to it and the horrors washing over him what's happened and and you're hearing it alongside him I mean, it's, it's really affecting and it's 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 really disturbing it's really disturbing speaking of kinderman let's just talk about george sheet scott's performance in this mm. film what did you think I think he's amazing. I mean, I I don't know any other word to describe. I mean, I think that he is, I, I think that he was the perfect cast, uh, you know, for that role. I think that he made you know, use of every word that he was given, every word. And having read the book, I, I don't know if Blatty could have found anybody that represented that character in the way that he originally intended him to be. I don't think you could have found anybody that represented him more. And he's tired and he's worn and, you know, he looks like this average Joe off the street. You know, I think that, I think he was, I thought it was great. I agree with you. That's why I thought he was so so effective in that character is because he wasn't the suave, good looking, right. you know, I'm going to pull the, I'm going to pull, I'm going to solve this case in the end. It was right. when you're, you're watching this movie throughout the course of the film, there's this uh, underlying sense that we're not sure whether he's going to make it or not. You know, there's, there's, yeah. there, there's a lot going on there. So I think he's just fantastic. I mean, you know, and of course, George C. Scott, I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's, just, he's just been in some amazing films for listeners out there that haven't seen this movie. Brad Dorff is in this film. And if you're not, if the name Brad Dorf isn't familiar to you, one, you have never seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, and or two, Deadwood. Or Deadwood. <laughs> or two, you've never, you, you, you've seen the Child's Play movies, but you don't, you're not, you don't, you're not aware that he is actually the voice of Chucky. Yeah. Having said all that, his character and his performance in this movie, and this is a bold statement. I think it's better than his performance as Billy Bibbit in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. I think this is Brad Dorf at his absolute best. And you talk about no one else pulling off that performance. Mm -mm. This was stunning. Listeners, just take a listen to this just for a moment. I like plays. The good ones. Shakespeare. I like Titus Andronicus the best. It's sweet. Incidentally, did you know that you are talking to an artist? I sometimes do special things to my victims, things that are creative. Of course, it takes knowledge, pride in your work. For example, a decapitated head can continue to see for approximately 20 seconds. So when I have one that's cocking, I always hold it up so that it can see its body. It's a little extra I throw in for no average. <laughs> I must admit it makes me chuckle every time. Life is fun. Wonderful life, in fact. For some. One of the things that I found, just listening to that, that clip right there, one of the things I found just so unbelievably creepy and terrifying about him was just how articulate he was in everything that he explained. And he was, he was almost at peace with everything he was doing. And he says, you know, I'm just, this is what I'm going to do next. And then the effects of this will be this. And this is what, and the movie it's was so all, clinical. It, I mean, it he approaches it from such a clinical, like, you know, disconnected perspective. He, like he's disconnected from the evil that, you know, he's 
committing. And, and that's what I think is so scary about the Gemini killer in general is that the Gemini killer doesn't matter if he's supernatural or not, because he lived at one point. <laughs> so whether he's the spirit of the Gemini killer or not, he lived at one point and actually committed these crimes, not because he was possessed, but because that's just what he wanted to do. That's the way he saw the world. And that's how he saw his contribution to human race was to be this artist of death, right? And I mean, it's it's really frightening. Now, one of the things that was discussed uh, a little bit in the previous episode, episode was how William Friedkin was a documentary filmmaker prior to jumping into making um, feature motion pictures. And he brought a, a sense of realism to the original Exorcist from, you know, the visits to the hospital, just to the on location, just to the matter of fact shots that he set up. And one of the other things that Friedkin was really well known for in The Exorcist was his use of sound design. Mm. And, and subliminal images that were throughout the film. They were subtle. And they were yet effective. Now, with with Blatty directing The Exorcist Part 3, he takes the sound design to a completely different level where it's not subtle. Mm -mm. And it's even more terrifying because it's just so jarring in certain scenes. So I'm just wondering if you want to talk just a little bit about the visual and audio differences and the video visual and audio styles of the two films. And we're leaving Exorcist 2 out of this conversation, of course. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. You know, you're talking about how it's kind of uh, there's so much discordant sound in this movie. And what I think is interesting is because I, I actually watched it twice. And on the second watch, I was noticing that Blatty does a really interesting thing where he's overlaying sounds and it becomes really, really effective. There's a, a scene in a, in a confessional and there's this overlay of this voice that starts as a normal voice that subtly changes into more of a sinister voice. And then it's this discordant, you know, sym symphonic noise that comes up. And then you're watching the silent horror on the character's face. And then this woman starts screaming. And I know it sounds like that would be a lot, but it's so seamless in the way that all of that is interlocked. And it's so incredibly frightening. And, and I also think too, he uses that discordant sound as really effective in creating some really fun jump scares. I'm not a big fan of jump scares because I think that they get really stale after a while and you expect that when the character closes the refrigerator door, the bad guy is going to be behind it, right? But I think in this, it works really well because the jump scares are not like any other jump scares that you're you're used to seeing. And then visually, I don't, I don't know about you, Dana, but I found this movie to be highly claustrophobic in the way that it's shot. It's either shot in widescreen, where it's just pulled back and it's looking at the, you know, just one static shot of, you know, something occurring for extended periods. And then it goes in on these super deep close ups and it makes you feel so uncomfortable because he forces you to watch things at such a, you know, an intimate level. And then he pulls back again and then he goes right back. So you get this relief and then you're right back in it. And I think that he does that to, to really, uh, you know, really good effect. I, I was actually surprised at how adept of a director Blatty was. And I also found the cinematography in this to just be really top notch. I mean, it was a really well done pr production. And I think it was obvious that everything they did, every, I can't imagine their storyboarding because every shot clearly was thought out in the way that it was shot, the way that the sound, you know, played into it and the way that even the characters, it felt almost like a play. At times, there's a scene in a, a cell between Kinderman and, and the Gemini killer and the way that that scene is shot. It feels like it's, you know, you're watching a staged play. And so I, I, I thought I thought it was all really, really effective at creating this in, this atmosphere that you could just cut with a knife. I mean, it was so thick. It was so thick. You know, speaking about the jump scares for a second. And, you know, I was very critical of the 2017 version of it for having too many jump scares in it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't eagerly go to see movies like The Conjuring or Annabelle or any any of these yeah. movies that have these jump scares in it because I think they I think it's a cheap if it's done too much in a film it's 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 a cheap scare. Now with The Exorcist 3 there and I don't want listeners going and saying oh this movie's just filled with jump scares because that's not no. the case. It's one or two. Well it's two, two maybe three at most. But they're so spread out mm -hmm. and there is no indication. There's no uneasiness there is, there's, now we're not going to tell you what it is because Jim brought it up in the, in the previous episode about how the Exorcist 3 has one of the most famous jump scares in horror movie history. And I found myself 
watching The Exorcist 3 and being, the first time I was watching it, being so unnerved because I was so worried about when that jump scare was going to happen because I had <laughs> no idea when it was going to happen. But the scene in question, which we won't even, I won't even give you a setup for it, is so damn effective mm. that that it, 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 it rightfully so deserves the moniker that Jim gave it. I mean, it, I, I think I'll go out on a limb and say, I, I think it's the scariest jump scare I've ever experienced. So, no, there, no, it's it's tied with, and I'm not a huge fan of these movies, but there's those paranormal activity movies. And the second one, I don't think it's a good film, but there's that great jump scare where she's in the kitchen and all the cabinets explode open at once. And it's so unexpected and it's not been done in a movie before. And it was so frightening. That jump scare and then this one are the two that have I mean, like literally, I, I, I think I like, you know, I didn't scream, but I think I made some sort of weird noise because my husband came into the room like, what's wrong? You know, because it, it took me so by surprise because you're not expecting it. And it is you're, you're talking about cheap scares. I mean, this is earned mm. that that scare is an earned scare. And it it is a lasting scare because of the way that it happens and connects to the plot. I mean, it is an earned scare that just leaves you. I mean, I felt it the rest of the movie afterwards, like I felt, you know, the tension from that and the fear from that for it carried through the rest of the film and i uh, it was you'll know it when you see it and, and <laughs> it's know it when you see it it's very telegraphed throughout the movie if you know what you're looking for if you know mm. if you know what you're like upon second viewing there's there's so many like subtle hints and clues that say this is why this will happen and this is why this will happen and you know our our main antagonist even basically says well you know you're forcing my hand to do something and then you know just the, yeah. but that's that's saying as much as i want to say about it what i'd like to talk about is just and without really getting into the the ending of the film you know i i, I want listeners to understand that i think ashley and i are both in agreement in this that the first like i said earlier the first two and a half acts of this film are just terrifying and, mm -hmm. and and so well done it and, and and she mentioned the cinematography that sweeping wide shot with the helicopters flying in the air like mm -hmm. everything about like that is just it was just i thought the movie was beautiful yeah that being said as i mentioned earlier the film that blatty shot and directed was not the film was ultimately not the film that was released in theaters the the studio mandated they forced him to reshoot pretty much the the third act of the film and you know, it should come as no surprise that the film is called The Exorcist, that there is an exorcism in the film. <laughs> that being said, if I can say one thing negative about the movie, which I don't, I don't want to say much negative about it. You know, you mentioned earlier, I think before we were recording, the special effects are not the greatest in some scenes. But, you know, you, you get what's called the 90s pass with that or the late 80s right. pass with that. Sure. Um, is just that it's such an abrupt cut from what's happening on the screen to the exorcism which, get me wrong, Blatty filmed The Exorcism. Like, it wasn't like they brought in another director to shoot that. He he did it all. But at the same time, it just felt so out of place. Mm. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, you go from that, you go from this scene where you feel like there's a, there's a moment that's been built to and what's going to happen with this character now. And then all of a sudden there's a priest, <laughs> you know, like it's that, it's that quick, you know, all of a sudden there's this priest coming in and he's speaking in Latin and he's throwing, you know, holy water and doing the whole, the whole rites and, you know, stuff starts flying around and you have this full confirmation of the supernatural all in that one second. Right. And I think that's what's so cheap about it is yeah. that, you know, every, I, I mentioned the word earned, how that scare is earned so much of this movie, you earn every bit of it. You know, they've laid out this beautiful story and then that is not earned at all. All of a sudden it becomes a horror movie. It's not really, it's not really a horror movie up to that point. I mean, there's some horror-y things, but it's not a horror movie. And it becomes one in that, in that minute. And I think, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned is the connections between this and the first Exorcist movie, the world, like, and how they're connected. And I think that's what's so sad about it is Blatty is so smart throughout of having these little references to the first Exorcist film and the world of the Exorcist film with like the wind carrying through the shots of the wind, you know, because uh, Pazuzu, you know, he's supposedly in Babylonian mythology, he was the dark god of wind. And so there's all, you know, the wind in the first Exorcist film, there's wind in this one, you know, it starts with the wind on the church steps, right? Blowing in the doors of the church and so you have these pieces that connect it to that that world, but it's subtle. 
And it's just enough to make you feel like you're still in the same storyline. And then it's like, bam, you know, we're right in the middle. Even the the lighting changes, yeah. you know, because there's so many of those scenes in the first exorcist that have that that deep blue cast when when they're performing the exorcisms. There's that blue wash, you know, with the lighting. And it, it, it that even gets brought in. Like it becomes so obvious, the connections. And that's what I I don't mind that there's an exorcism. I don't I don't mind any of that. It, it's just it wasn't it was too abrupt and it was too obvious those those connections if you're going to do an exorcism i want it i want it to be different right and i i know that's silly because there's an exorcism right and it all takes place in the same way but i want it to feel different and it didn't it felt like oh well people love this the first time so we're going to give it to them again that's that's what it felt like after the film's release years after the film's released blatty tried to get back a lot of the unused footage to essentially put together you know what would be more like an assembly cut of <laughs> what his film was going to look like. And you've and you've had an opportunity to watch what was intended to be uh, Blatty's vision for the final act of the film. And without getting into too many spoilers, is this something you would – we're going to encourage people to watch the theatrical cut, and then would you encourage them to seek out this director's cut? You know, I would. I, I think that if you're someone that is not a fan of uh, – you know, poor cuts, you know, like a not not a very good quality film. It, it, you may want to watch the original first and then watch this one because it's a little jarring when because it's all it's I don't know the proper terminology, but it's it's like unedited footage, you know, so it's it's not good footage. It's not clear um, in the same way that the theatrical footage is. But I, I would I would encourage you because I think it's much more the the vision that you know, Blatty had and, and you know, he fought, he fought deeply from what I read to have the movie called Legion. He didn't want it called Exorcist 3 at all. And so this is for me, you can watch the Exorcist 3, which is what it is. It's the Exorcist 3, or you can watch this version is Legion, right? It's not the Exorcist 3. It's what Blatty intended with Legion. And I think that you'll enjoy it a lot, a lot more because I don't want to I, I won't want to say anything bad about the movie because everybody should watch it. But just be prepared that the ending's a letdown, right? Because it's not what he intended. And so if you want to see what he did, still watch the original, which if you have Amazon Prime, it's free. If you have a Prime membership, it's it's available on Amazon Prime and you don't have to pay anything for it. And then you can go seek out, you know, the Shout Factory factory version if you want to see what he actually had intended. So yeah, I, I definitely would. I think the ending's much cleaner. Um, it makes a lot more sense. And I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, the even the monologuing is is better because instead of incorporating Father Karras's character, it's just the Gemini killer, which I think is is it's really, really effective to have just that one that one character delivering all of that. So I think that we would do a serious disservice um, if we didn't talk very briefly about I mean, truly the most 90s screenshot ever, which is that cameo that Fabio has and the, you know, the DMV waiting room, you know, admission to get into heaven. I, I think that if you're not convinced yet to watch this movie, then hopefully this will convince you because I, I think Blatty, it, it's indicative of how smart he is because he has this moment and we won't tell you how it gets there, but there's this moment where Kinderman has a dream sequence and he's in like a waiting room within some sort of heavenly plane. And, and I know that Burton did it with Beetlejuice and it was that to that comedic effect, you know, where they they're waiting in the admission process. And the joke is that, you know, they wait for years. But this is not I, I think a lot of people think it's supposed to be comic book relief. But I want to talk to you about that, Dana, because I, I have a different take on it. I don't think that Blatty was intending it to be funny in and of itself. I think that he's playing on a really interesting fear that people who aren't religious have about faith about about an afterlife because a lot of people you know the concept of like a jewish or you know the jewish idea that you know you're held away from the light of god and the christian version of hell i mean that of course is scary innately i mean hell hell sounds like it fucking sucks right like you know i mean you're burning for all eternity that sounds terrible but i think people uh, to some degree also that aren't of faith fear the idea of heaven because of the banality associated with it and you know i'll be very honest that i was raised in a very religious house Household. And I remember the first time my husband came home and met my grandmother, uh, she was talking to him about 
you know, heaven and, you know, trying to get him to believe and was telling him, you know, the streets are going to be paved with gold. He was good with that. You're going to have a house. He was good with that. And she said, and we'll all have jobs. And he's like, what the fuck? We're going to have what? <laughs> like, you know, he's like, I want to, I want to be on a pension in heaven, you know, if it exists. And, and I, and while I think that's funny, I think the idea of that banality of that constant, what the hell are we going to do for eternity? Are we going to sit around and sing all day? I mean, I think that's really, I think that's a scary concept for people who don't believe in a traditional concept of heaven. And Blatty, I think it's playing on that there with, you know, the little jazz bands of the the angels, you know, so that you have something to occupy your time and your when your luggage gets lost. And and I think while it, it is funny and that weird cameo with Fabio is strange and amazing. I think it's a really brilliant scene and I think indicative of how smart the script is and how well thought out the story is because that is really frightening to some people. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? So I really don't have anything more to agree on. That. I mean, that's that scene is absolutely brilliant. I'm watching it, and it took me a minute because Fabio's kind of been out of the pop yes. culture for a while. And it looked, I and know. I said, I said, now who is that? I'm like, oh, that's Fabio. Oh. Now, and isn't the guy behind him? He's a basketball yeah, Patrick player. Ewing. And I yeah, rec- Patrick Ewing. And right? I recognize yeah. Patrick Ewing. I was like, what's well, Patrick Ewing? And uh, mm-hmm. so then all of a sudden, I'm trying to spot as many cameos as I can in that scene. But it's so effective. And and you nailed it right on the head when you just said, you know, it's it's bloody playing with the audience about, you yes. know, about their, their, their fears. And speaking of fears... <laughs> I want to segue into sort of the final question I want to I want to ask you. I have watched all three Exorcist films. I know there is another one called Exorcist, Exorcist the Beginning or Exorcist mm. the Prequel. We won't be doing an episode on that. Spoiler no. alert. <laughs> that being said, I've watched all three films and I'm going to comment on the second one first because, you know, I wouldn't have watched it if Jim hadn't encouraged me to see it. And in closing on The Exorcist Part 2, it is something that is radically different from Parts 1 and Parts 3. Radically different. And and Jim had made the argument that the way the order in which you should watch the three Exorcist films is Part 1, Part 3, and then Part 2. He said that's that that's the that's the natural order into which what in, in, into watching these films. So uh, I guess in a way what I'm trying to say is don't feel obligated to watch Part 2. If you haven't seen 3, you can watch the first one and the third one. Don't feel like you're going to be missing any part of the story if you don't watch Part 2. But on a side note, you should absolutely watch Part 2 because it's kind of batshit crazy in a good way. So the question I have for you, Ashley, is the first one or the third one, I think we both agree, are the first and the third one, we both agree, are both very, very good movies. I think we both agree we really like both of them. That being said, if you were pressed to answer this question, what would your answer be? Which do you find scarier? The third one. I mean, I, I, I can't believe I'm saying that because if you had asked me that ahead of time, I would have been like, ah, there's no way. But I mean, the, the third one, I, I think it has... Uh, I just think the scares are are deeper. I think they're smarter. I think they're a lot smarter. And I think that the story actually is a lot smarter than in the first one. And because of its intelligence, it's it's much more frightening. I think it's much more frightening. And I think that, you know, when I watch The Exorcist now, the first Exorcist doesn't scare me anymore, right? Because I I don't find it to be that frightening of a story anymore. And maybe that's because I've seen it so many times and you get the familiarity with it. I don't I don't know, but I just don't find it to be as frightening because it's obvious. There the the horrors on the screen and we know how it ends and there's a nice clean little bow put on it. You know, in this one I, I think that even though there's an ending that's a tight ending, so the fact that this could happen, you know, I think is is scarier. I think it's a scarier idea. And I think that moving beyond just Reagan, because I, I think what, what the first one does so well is the greatest horror of the original Exorcist, I think, is not the horror that Reagan endures. It's the horror of everyone around her that they're forced to endure. They're forced to encounter the worst of themselves because Bazuzu attacks them on that. You know, with Karis, it's his mother. You know, it's, it's 
it's all of these things, the destruction of the religious iconography. And that's scary, but it's contained, right? Because it's in one bedroom, it's in one house, and it's with one character. The Exorcist 3 explodes that. It, it expands that out to all of mankind. And that's why I just think innately it's it's just... It's a, I think it's a, a scarier movie, and I think it's absolutely one of the most psychologically, like, mind, you know, psychological mind fucks of a movie I've seen in a really long time. I'm going to just uh, second that as well. Uh, I know this because I had to take breaks watching it because yeah. it was I, – and I'm, I was watching it daytime, lights are on, you know, and I'm just – there is imagery in this mm. film, which I will not spoil, but there are, are just single – frame moments which freaking was famous for doing in the exorcist and sure. but they happen in this film as well and there was a there was one particular moment which you and i discussed when we weren't recording which mm-hmm. just just messed with me like to the point where i for just that fleeting second said to myself did i just imagine what i just saw there or did i just really see that right and right. I, I i and that to me if a film is forcing me to contemplate the real my own reality, then I think that just speaks to just how deep down this psychological film goes, the, the psychology of this film goes, just how deep down it goes. It was terrifying. Well, you know, and, I, and I, I'm embarrassed to even admit this, but when I was done watching it, I had to go to the store. We were out of something. And so I was leaving. It was, it was horrible weather here in Houston that day, and it was horribly windy. And as I was leaving, the back door was being opened as I opened the front door. So the front door slammed shut behind me. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, like for a fleeting moment, I've never, ever worried about being possessed in my life. And in that moment, I was like, is it Pazuzu? <laughs> because like no. it was super windy, windy. And like, I've never had that thought after a movie before. I've never worried that that was going to be me next. And the fact that I I mean, it was a fleeting thought. It didn't last long. But the fact that it stayed, you know, the fact that it even happened, I think speaks volumes about how frightening this movie is because it sticks. It just sticks with you and it's 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 fun though it's a fun ride i mean it's a fun movie to watch it's enjoyable and i would suggest watching it with people because it's got i watched it by myself and then i watched it with someone and so it was a lot more fun to watch it with someone because there's nothing greater than sharing that you know those jump scares together and it's i mean it it is it's a a good ride it's a lot of fun this is kind of a rare thing these days you know to be surprised by a film that's almost 30 years old that you just it was honestly, it was a delight to watch the film. I have forced people in my inner circle to watch it, and all of them were skeptical. And not one person yet has not. People have not liked the ending, but they've not liked that. Nobody has not liked the film. And I'd be really curious to find somebody too who didn't like it, because I'd love to hear why. You know, I'd love to hear if it's because the first is so good, or if it's just you know you think it's just a you agree with the original critics. You know, I'd just be curious to hear from both you know from both sides. So excellent. All right. Well, Ashley, people want to follow you on Twitter. What's the what's your handle? I am at Ashley Schlafly, uh, S-C-H-L-A-F-L-Y. Terrible last name, but that's where you can find me. <laughs> and as always, there will be a link in this episode's show notes. So, uh, Ashley, thank you again. I know this. I know we keep we we have a couple films we want to do, and yes. for some reason we keep pushing. They they get keep getting pushed <laughs> back because this this was an episode that was it had to be done. Oh, I, I mean, I, I was very, I'm very excited we did it. But my fingers, Dana, are still crossed for showgirls. I think They're still crossed for showgirls. <laughs> hopefully we'll get that done in time for Christmas. So, so. Merry Christmas, everyone. Excellent. All right, <laughs> Ashley, thank you so much. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.